0: Uh, it, is, uh, it is a joy to be in Romans and in Romans 8. And, and there is much here to, to uh, celebrate. Uh, it is a weighty passage. We're getting into some very weighty matters to be sure. But there should be a joy. And I, and I start that idea with a joke is that there are ways in which the humor and richness of God is fundamental to our ability to bear the weightiness And to know what it is to have a God who loves and delights in us. And some of the times when we take texts like this and turn them into almost sacred texts in the human way that a sacred text is honored and becomes terrifying and sacred lest we make jokes or belittle it, we have to just remember that God made platypuses and that God has jokes in his Bible, and uses raw and wry humor. We must realize that even as we lean into a passage about suffering, that God's desire for us to know the fullness of life and joy, and even the weighty matters of God's election, and how God moves us through a broken and fallen world, and how we are to be anchored in the truth of who God is, that piety should never remove from us the great delight and joy, the weeping and the rejoicing that comes as we follow Christ. We are in Romans 8, and just a quick reminder what we've seen so far. In verse 2, we were reminded that we are free from the law of sin because what God has done through Christ by His sent Son, verse 3 tells us. And according to verse 4, this is applied to us by the Spirit Himself. And so we have this great gift of being freed from the law of sin and death and the righteous parts of the law being fulfilled by Christ on our behalf according to the Spirit. And so we have this rich Trinitarian sense of all three persons of the Trinity working together on our behalf and on behalf of God's glory to restore us. And then as we moved into 8, 12, and 17, we found out that not only are we free... Not only did we not have to go to hell or into our own personal destruction, but that we have been raised to the place of co-heirs with Christ, not simply told that we are free and then we wander out of a prison wondering if anyone will pick us up, but we find ourselves ushered into the very holy of holies, into the throne room of grace, and we are told that we have an inheritance, the same inheritance that the son, that our older brother who rescued us has. And that because of that, we're heading towards glorification, verse 17 told us. And 18 through 24 tells us that this inheritance is greater than our present suffering. And that Paul has been moving us through the reality that human life, with all of its challenges and brokenness, the fact that we do need to look at it through the lens of a rainbow. We do need to see it through the lens of what it can and will be. Because right now, it is not often easy to look at. That my own heart is not something I would want to look at if not through the lens of the new heart that God is giving me. Left to my own devices, looking at what I used to be, makes me feel heavy. And so this inheritance, Paul tells us in 18 through 25, as we looked at last week, is greater than our present suffering. Let's now continue with Paul's discussion As we pick up in verse 26 through 30, hear now God's word. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for, as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit... "...because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn from among many brothers." And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we do need your strength and encouragement as we look at this wonderful text. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would again encourage us, Lord, That in the midst of a life that is full, for some of us, of various kinds of suffering, that the comfort of this passage might encourage. And Lord, for those of us who find our lives very absent of suffering, we pray, Lord, that we might be mindful as we read through this passage again of those around us and in this world that you came to save and restore. And whatever said this morning that is not true or useful for the building up of your people, may those words quickly be forgotten. Amen. Well, uh, the first time you do really significant things in your life, you can feel that you're in over your head, right? First-year teachers, Uh, we have a lot of teachers in our congregation. That first year of teaching, you can feel very much that you are completely in over your head, uh, that you can't keep up. It's hard to keep your head above water, we often say. Uh, Certainly when one has uh, a first child, Uh, For most of us, that is a great feeling of being significantly over our head, uh, that we are constantly trying to get our heads above water. The first six months of marriage, which I should have put before having kids, but uh, the first six months of marriage can often be that same sort of thing. Like you you have about three, four, five months of, of honeymoon, many of us, and then you hit like months six and seven, and you're like, "Wait, this person really isn't changing in the way that I had expected them to uh, there and and marriage can very quickly feel like we're in over our heads. It's not uncommon, and it's not something to be avoided and if it can happen to us in these regular events in human life, how much more so when we are told that we are co-heirs with Christ? That what it means to follow our big brother into the business of being about the kingdom of God, what we talked about last week is all of creation groans to be freed from subjection to being a frustration to us and to be kingdom bringers in the midst of a world which is still... Battling, though defeated, the leftover powers and principalities in their retreat, which they are not giving up easily. We want to talk about being in over our head, how much more so when we realize that becoming a believer means becoming a part of the family business, a part of God's work in and through this world. Which is why Paul starts this text off by saying, look, in your weakness, the Spirit comes. We're going to, however, start our exegesis, not surprisingly, from the bottom up. We're going to start in verse 29 and 30, then move back up through this paragraph and see how God answers this question of how we engage in a world and in a life and in an expectation that we are going to follow Christ into suffering on His behalf and on behalf of the other. So, first of all, God's people and plan. Then secondly, in 27 and 28, God's name and God's presence. And then finally, in verse 26, God's power. So first, God's people. Uh, you cannot read chapter 30, I mean sorry, verse 30 as a first century Jewish person, and not see the Exodus. not see the promises to Abraham. God selects Abraham. He makes him promises about what he and his people will be, not only for Abraham, but for the generations after. They are called and elected. And then they go down to Egypt and they're powerless and they barely know God. And they cry out. Interestingly, the text isn't exactly clear as to whether they're crying out to God or they're just crying out, but God hears their cries. And he goes down and he rescues them from slavery, from death, moves them into a period of the wilderness, into a sojourning period with the promise and the hope of heading to a place where there's milk and honey and there will be peace. And so... When we read those he predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he glorified, that is not an abstract theological idea about a future reality which we can happily have wonderful debates with our Arminian and Free Will Baptist brothers and sisters. It's just not the point of the text. The point of the text is in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your slavery, know that God has chosen and will redeem. And those he redeems, he will justify before him because they're in sin and death. They need to be justified. And he will do that through his own work, which he does constantly in the wilderness. And what he does constantly in various ways during the kingdom And finally and completely answers the problem of justification in the sufficient work of Christ. We are God's people. And so when suffering comes into our lives or we choose to not avoid suffering. The question can be God where are you? God is this really what you've called me to? Is this really what we're supposed to be about? It doesn't feel safe. It doesn't feel prudent. But God has a plan. God's plan is for the redemption and restoration of his people and creation. And not just the Jewish people, but for all people through the work of the Jewish people. Through the work of the Jewish Messiah. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. God's plan is for God's people to live in and through the world like his Son. Again, the image here is not that he's going to be shiny like the transfiguration. The plan for your life is not to make you shiny. It's not so that you can walk around and glow. That is not being conformed to the image of God. And we know this intellectually. But in our hearts, what does it mean to be conformed to the image of the second person of the Trinity? We're going to need the assurances that God foreknew. That he planned from the foundation of the world. And at this point, I... Don't want my free will to have much power because most of my free will is a train wreck. He better foreknow me. He better have chosen to have me conformed because I would like to be conformed to whatever's comfortable next to me. He'd better be sovereign because I won't follow him into suffering. I won't follow him into a world in which my life is defined by love of the other, not love of the self. To be conformed to the image of Christ is to find that because the Father loves me perfectly, I can love those who don't love me back. You've been told that you're co heirs with Christ, that the Father loves you the way He loves the Son. Therefore, our identity is already predestined, already secured, already in the firstborn among many brothers. So we are God's people. To understand the richness of 29 and 30 and to make sure they don't end up a disembodied theological argument you must put them back into the first five books of the Bible read what it means for God's people to be foreknown and predestined to be conformed to the image of their redeemer through the crucible of the wilderness through the challenges of taking the land and what it meant and all of the warnings that were given to them be careful when you enter into a land flowing with milk and honey, that you do not forget me? Is that not always still the challenge, this side of glory, that when we come into relationship with God, there is this temptation to begin to feel that all of those blessings are ones in which we are grateful and yet we forget where they came from or what they're for? And so we move from the assurance of God's uh, being God's people and God having a plan into verses 27 and uh, 28. And here we see that God's name is a name that is both unnerving and comforting. Right? God has given various titles throughout Scripture, various names. ...that he is associated with is as a way to try and unpack the fullness of who God is. And in this passage, the name of God is the one who search heart, searches hearts. The searcher of hearts. He knows the inmost reality of my fallen heart... ...and he knows the inmost reality of the heart that I've been given and its potential... He knows the stone heart and he knows the heart of flesh. He is the searcher of my heart and yours, which is unnerving because I can act really nice. I I can. Some of you may not believe, but there are times when I have acted nicely. I can pull the wool over somebody's eyes. and, And many of us are pretty good at that if we choose to be. That doesn't mean that reflects our hearts. What reflects our hearts usually is when we're surprised suddenly. And out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Or out of the shock and fear of that around me, my heart speaks. But God is a God who searches hearts and yet still predestines. Well, it's because He searches hearts that He's got to be more active. He's got to pull people out of Egypt, and he's got to argue with them the entire time they keep saying, We would really like to go back to Egypt. It was nice there. We had pots of meat, it was safer there than this wilderness. This is hard work. Where's the water going to come from? I'd like to go back to Egypt now. God knows that heart. But God does not leave us alone, God is present. So we have a God whose name searches our hearts, but he also knows the heart of Jesus. And he knows what Paul knows, which is as we grow into that heart, we do love our neighbor as ourselves. We do worship God. We do delight in our own weakness and failure because God's glory is shown in ever greater degrees. We can begin to understand and God wants that heart to grow in us. But in the meantime, in this already and not yet, that heart needs encouragement and strength and it needs one advocating for it. And so we are told here in verse 28 that we know that those who love... Uh, no, not, not the 28 yet. Sorry, we'll get there in a second. Uh, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Which should remind us of Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 and 10, where the Jesus we know learned through what he suffered, awkward, and then stands before the Father pleading on our behalf. So we have a high priest who understands our weakness because he learned through what he suffered. And so the Father has before him the Spirit pleading through our hearts with the Son standing before him pleading on our behalf, knowing our weaknesses and being our advocate. Because we don't know what to pray for. But what we do know, according to verse 28, is that in those things that we don't understand, like going through wildernesses, like being challenged with abundance and forgetting who gave it to us, whether it is physical, emotional, financial, or even spiritual dark nights of the soul. Because we are being worked into and becoming more like our big brother, verse 28 has context. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. You need only look at the life of Christ there's nothing about the last few hours of his life that seem terribly useful from a human perspective from a worldly power perspective from an avoidance of suffering because god just wants us to be safe and happy perspective i've had more conversations particularly with parents who struggle with and push back against the idea that their children too will be called to suffer. And how many times I've had conversations even with pastors about this. They're going, yes, Jesus suffered, but don't make that application to my children. And the challenge there is that I don't know where we get that division, that if we're going to be conformed in the image, no. Can they die to save the world? No, it won't be effective. Hence the reason Isaac didn't die on an altar. But the notion that as we raise our families and as we encourage the community of faith, that one of our chief goals should be the avoidance of suffering in our lives or our children's lives, it's going to make it really hard to understand how verse 28 is anything more than a platitude because we're spending most of our life trying to avoid the very crucible by which we are conformed into the image of our big brother. And if Jesus learned through what he suffered, why on earth do I think that myself or my children or my loved ones or friends are going to be formed into the image of Christ in the absence of or in the vigorous pursuit of the avoidance of suffering? This isn't a verse that says, after you ran really hard and finally got caught in a blind alley and suffering mauled you for a couple of hours, thank goodness we got verse 28. In the absence of any ability to avoid suffering, thank goodness we have verse 28. I don't think that's Paul's purpose. Certainly it's not the way Paul lived. And certainly it's not the way Jesus lived. And how many of our decisions then, personally and as families and as cultures, end up being ones where difficult issues of division and hurt and betrayal are avoided because inherently we know that to do so is going to entail suffering. Suffering that I may be able to avoid if I can put it off till tomorrow. We don't know what to pray for because we're torn between self-love, which is going to avoid personal suffering and be happy if the other suffers, and hopefully not too much. As long as there's a measure of less suffering for me, or for me and mine, for me and my children or my house. Well, I'm not strong enough to do that. I would like to spend most of my life avoiding suffering, particularly uh, as I get older. But verse 26 tells us that this, the name and the presence of God is not all we have. We have the power of God. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We've already started to touch on the power of this verse, but the reality is that God's power speaks into us in the middle of our weaknesses. To see his plan as distinct from ours. See, the greatest weakness I have is that I confuse my plans with God's plans, and therefore my prayers get out of alignment. My ability to lean in and go through suffering uh, is reduced because most of my plans involve very little suffering for me, and therefore it makes it harder for me to see His plan, which may or may not have days when I am at great peace and joy and other days when I choose to come alongside and enter into the pain of another. You see, it's it's not that verse in chapter 8 isn't about what happens when I get cancer or a loved one gets cancer or someone dies of COVID, which all of those things are right and true, but Jesus came and not only healed the sick, but spent time with and identified with the other. It is the power of chapter 8 to tell us that we are on a journey to restore the kingdom of God, which is no less than the end of disease and suffering and cancer in our lives, But it is the cancer of our hearts and in societies and in our actions that bring every bit as much decay as the illnesses that ravage our bodies. The the cancers that eat at the body of Christ are no less in need of being addressed than the cancers and illnesses that eat away at our flesh. And we often don't know what to pray because why Would we, without being conformed into the image of Christ himself, following and knowing the love of our Father? We'll end with this. Uh, In the midst of a storm, Jesus bids Peter to come out. That water is over his head. But that's not an issue. That's not Peter's problem. The depth of the water is not Peter's problem. Peter's problem is whether or not he can keep his eyes on Jesus as the waves are large all around him. The question is never whether you and I, brothers and sisters, can navigate a life where the waters are not over our head. The question is whether or not we keep our eyes on the one who allows us to walk over the waters, and to not be swept under by them. It's true that Peter at least got out of the boat, and the 11 of us, and I would have been the one going, Peter, I don't know if you should do that, weren't even willing to step out of the boat, because at least that had wood and I could stand on it, and there was no chance, at least in the short term, of getting in over my head. Most of us are like the 11. A couple of us wish we could be like Peter. All of us know that they were sinking without Jesus. And the point wasn't that they should have stayed on the land. The point wasn't that they shouldn't have gotten into the boat. The point was that when Jesus walks with them and leads them through the storm, if they keep their eyes on him, they will find as you and I will find, that we are predestined not to drown, that he foreknew the path that he would lead us through, and that having led us through and walking on the water of the difficulties of life that do not drown us, but become the very baptisms that wash us clean of our fears and our sin, that we are not just justified, In following him. But that we are glorified. That that's what glory looks like. Following our big brother. Over the waves. That the world tells us. Will drown us. And in joining in in that suffering. Finding. That far from having been drowned. That we have safely reached. The other side. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. We thank you that we need not fear the end. We need not fear the middle. We know that you wrote it from the beginning. So we ask, Lord, that we would trust in that. Follow you into the world and into the ways in which you would use us for your glory and for the power of the kingdom to come forth in more lives and in greater ways in this world and that we would in ever, ever wonderful ways delight and rejoice in the joy of walking over the water. How can we not smile as we look in your face? In Christ's name, amen.